Well, good morning. As uh, Dylan just said, my name is Dan Olson. I'm one of the elders here. And if you're new to the church, our lead pastor, Dan Halleck, is spending one last full day with his family in Denver. And he will be returning this uh, tomorrow, probably in the late afternoon. And so it's my opportunity and my privilege to be able to bring the word to you today. Now, the past few times that I've had this opportunity, uh, we have explored together those situations in Scripture where a woman was described as barren. There are seven of them. The first one is Sarah. The second, Rebecca. The third is Rachel. The fourth is Manoah and his wife. Remember when we talked about that, she never even got her name in the scripture. The, four, the fifth is Elkanah and Hananiah. The sixth is Michal, wife of King David. And the seventh is the one we're looking at today, Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's interesting to me that of these seven, six of them had children even though they were declared barren. We have Isaac. We have twins, Jacob and Esau. We have Joseph, Samson, Samuel, and then today, from Zechariah and Elizabeth, we have John the Baptist. The only one of the seven described as barren who actually never had children was Michal, wife of King David, son of, of Saul, and it was directly related to the fact that when David was uh, celebrating and dancing before the Lord that she despised him. And it says that she never had children. Now, I'm certain that there were other people in this period of time that also experienced barrenness. And perhaps some of them had miraculous birth, some of them may not have. But these are the ones that are recorded for us. So I'd like us to read the passage that's before us today, which is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, 
and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you, sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Well, I'm not intending to give you a full history lesson, but we must spend a few moments getting an idea of what is happening in the world at this point in time. The last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. It was written some 400 years prior to the event that we just read about in Luke. There had been no new prophet of God. There had been no great kings or leaders that were clearly anointed by God, I guess I would say. And so it was considered to be a period of silence on the part of God. When Malachi was written, the Jews had just recently returned to their home from Babylon and were given the opportunity to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish their faith. This was all at the behest of King Darius and the uh, allowed on his part to do so. But in 333 B.C., a power arose that would change the world. We know that power as Alexander the Great. In a very short period of time, he conquered the Persian Empire. He became commander of Egypt. He established the city of Alexandria and many other cities spread throughout the area of Palestine, all designed to be centers of Greek thought, Greek language, Greek culture, and Greek worship. For that is how the Greeks decided that they would pacify this world that they conquered. It would become one large Greek world. Now Alexander died at age 33, and his empire was torn into four pieces, handed in in those four pieces to four of his generals. The two that we're concerned with today are Ptolemy, who was in Egypt and the surrounding regions, and Seleucid, who was in Syria and the surrounding regions, 
And where those surrounding regions bumped up against each other, there was trouble. And it was here in Palestine where the people of Israel lived that they would be ground down between these two generals for the next 150 years. Those that refused to submit to this new Greek way of thinking were hunted and harried. Those that agreed were awarded with position and power. It was during this time that the Greeks went about desecrating every altar. They went so far as to sacrifice a pig on the altar in Jerusalem to desecrate it so that the Jews could never use it again. But the world was changing. A new power was rising. That kind of sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? Maybe I'm watching too much TV here, I don't know. A new power was rising to challenge the Greek overrule, and that power was Rome. Once again, based on the power of their army to defeat anyone in the world, Rome began to conquer all of the known world, and they accomplished that rather quickly. Now, this meant that all those in Palestine who had been hunted and harried by the Greeks had respite. For the Romans had a completely different way of taking care of the regions that they conquered. Rome had the power to appoint leaders, but they allowed those leaders to run the lands however they chose as long as they paid the tribute. If any country decided, well, we don't have to pay the tribute to Rome, then miraculously the Roman army would show up on the borders of that country and then they would be given one more chance to pay the, pay the Romans. And most of them did, interestingly enough. Now, one of the rulers that was appointed by the Romans was an Idumean by the name of Herod. Idumean simply means that he was descended from Esau instead of from Jacob. So he was not a Jew. And yet he ruled the Jews in this capacity for 40 years. He was friends with very important and powerful people in Rome, and that's who he owed his position to. As such, he was a faithful vassal. He was a great builder, and the land was filled with his temples, his amphitheaters, fortresses, and palaces. He was a wonderful host to his enemies and a terrible enemy to his people. Over the course of Herod's life, he began to suspect that members of his own family were plotting to take his place. He had his wife beheaded. He had his father-in-law drowned. Two of his three sons he had murdered. It was said at the time, better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. This was a ruthless and evil man. Now we know from our history that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. I mentioned that before that Somehow the, the accounting for time was not done properly, and he died for, in 4 B.C. And so, applying what we know of Scripture, these events probably had to happen at least two years before that, because when the wise men came to, to Herod and told them about the new uh, king that was born, 
when he decided to kill all the infants in the area to try to wipe out that king. He asked to kill all that were two years of age and under, trying to make sure he didn't miss him. So what we're looking at is roughly about 7 BC, somewhere in there. Uh, you might have footnotes that give a, a much better time, but that's roughly where we're looking. And so it was into this kind of world where Israel was under the boot of Rome that we have our story today. Now the temple was still under construction. Herod had taken the liberty to give many improvements that were not in keeping with the details of Holy Scripture. But there were still priests in the temple following the directions of King David in Scripture, and they were serving in the temple. We're told that Zechariah was of the order of Abijah. Now what do we know about Zechariah? Well, first of all, we read in Numbers 8, verses 23 and following, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years, of, of, 25 years old and upward, they shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from the service in the work and not work anymore. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations. So, if this direction was being followed, it's likely that Zechariah was almost 50. He could possibly have been 50. This may have been his last time. We're not told that. But in this text, he calls himself old. And his wife, now you remember, this is pretty delicate, right? You want to make sure you say this right. His wife was advanced in age. The, new, the, the uh, King James Version puts it even better, I think. It says that his wife was well stricken in years. All of this being a very delicate dance. We're told that Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, and Elizabeth, whose name means God promises, we're told that they were devout members of their community, walking in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this does not mean that they were sinless. It is a description of a couple who has dedicated themselves to following the Lord to the best of their ability, and so Scripture calls them blameless. The only sorrow in their life is that Elizabeth is barren. Now, in Jewish thought at the time, if you had no children, then you had no part in the coming kingdom. You had no part in Messiah. It was considered a sign of God's displeasure and judgment on either you or something that had happened in your family that you were being punished for. Later in this passage, Elizabeth herself describes it as disgrace among men. It's also clear that this was a matter of intense, regular, and constant prayer for both Zechariah and Elizabeth. They have been asking for a child, hopefully a son, but who can be choosy when you don't have one? They've been asking for a child ever since they were married. Now, I don't know what the set period of time would be that finally declares you as barren, but they had clearly exceeded it. So Zechariah was in the temple this day because his division was on duty. 
They would serve for one week on a rotational basis, and there were 24 of these courses. Abijah was course number eight. And so this was a rotating schedule. Every opportunity of, I guess, being the eighth time, every eight weeks, he would be on duty. Not eight weeks. I'm not good at math, obviously. But I do understand a rotating schedule. because that's what I have lived with for many years. Now, being in the temple was real work because the priests had many duties according to the Old Testament. They were the ones who examined all of the animals that were to be sacrificed because the animal had to be uh, blemished, unblemished. Uh, They were the ones who performed the sacrifice, they offered the blood. Not all sacrifices involved killing an animal but they were involved in making sure that those offerings were offered appropriately as well. They could also be consulted for uh, various problems that the Old Testament had described that that a priest needed to be the one to look it over. So if there were 24 courses and they each served one week, that would be twice a year, that would be 48 weeks. We know there's 52, so there's still four weeks to be accounted for. And those are accounted for in the fact that every time there was a holy week or a high week, like the Passover or the Feast of Booths, that kind of thing, all the courses were expected to be in Jerusalem serving at the temple because the the city would be inundated with pilgrims coming for those high holy times. So, on this particular day, likely a Sabbath, One of the priests of the order was chosen by Lot to offer incense on the altar of the holy place. Now, the choosing by Lot is something that started in the Old Testament, likely with the Urim and the Thummim. And there are some that consider those to be kind of dice-like things where you just kind of throw them in it and you take what happens there. I don't think by Lot was uh, choosing a short straw, but it's intended to be thrown to God to uh, influence it. And so, just by chance, ha-ha, right? By lot, he is the one chosen to enter into the holy place. Now, this is not the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is entered one time a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest only. So this is the room in front of the Holy of Holies, and there, there is an an altar and a place to burn incense and his job that day was to go in and offer the incense as uh, representing the prayers of the people and so it was a big deal for Zechariah to do this one time in their life could could a priest expect that he would have this opportunity and of all the times this was his chance so it was a wonderful Amazing opportunity, and you can imagine that he was very excited about doing it. So this is the setting. Silence from God for 400 years for the nation. And silence from God for Zachariah and his wife for their marriage. But then, in an instant, everything changed. There is an angel standing to the right of the altar. Now, I'm pretty sure this isn't in the manual. 
No other priest has ever reported that there was an angel standing on the right of the altar. So when it says Zechariah was troubled, he's troubled because we're going off script here, something's wrong. And then it says that he was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Now that's good because it shows that Zechariah was in his right mind. But I'm curious, how did he know it was an angel? What do angels look like? Artists have always depicted angels with wings. Mostly so that we can go, okay, okay, that's the angel because it's got wings. Just like the Holy Family always has a halo, right? So we can always go, okay, there's the Christ child, there's Joseph, there's Mary. I don't know. Somehow he knew intuitively, perhaps, that this was an angel. He's fearful because he's confronted with a reality that this is not a person, this is an angel. And even though he knows in Scripture angels are messengers of God, he's still frightened because this angel wants to talk to him. Then his fear grew when he realized that the angel wasn't there to just chat with him about what's going on in in the world. He's there because he probably has a message from God. So when the angel speaks, and it appears that all angels must say this because he starts by saying what? Fear not, right? Because that's what happens when we confront angels. The first thing he says is, your petition has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, and imagine Zachariah going, the angel knows my wife's name. Elizabeth will bear you a son. A son. He probably had a hard time remembering everything that was said after that because he was so excited. A son. After all these years. The angel tells him that he will have joy and gladness, that many will rejoice at the birth of this child. He tells him that the boy is to be a Nazarite. And we t- remember that happened with Manoah and his wife as well. The, son, the child is to drink no wine or strong drink. It says that the, that the angel tells him that the, the child will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And then what's really interesting is the, the angel quotes from the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, when he says that the, that the, the hearts of the fathers would be turned towards the children and the hearts of the children turned to the fathers. It's right there in the last bit of Malachi. And then he says that this child will go as a forerunner before the Lord to make ready a people prepared for God. This is a pretty important thing. Zechariah, don't you just love him? He's very human. The first thought in his mind is, uh, how how can I know this? For I am old and my wife, well stricken, Now, before you judge Zechariah, look at Abraham. What did Abraham say when he was told this? Oh, Lord God, how will I know that this will happen since I'm childless? 
Just in, in the next bit of the scripture, Gabriel goes to Mary and tells her that she's going to have a child. And she says, how is that possible? I, I've never known a man. So it's not wrong for Zechariah to have responded this way. He's addressing an obvious problem. How will I know this is true? I'm old. My wife's well stricken. Then the angel comes back to him and says, I am Gabriel. Now, if you know your scripture, who was it that met with Daniel and laid out to him all that was going to happen in the history of the world? It was Gabriel. Gabriel is not joking when he says, I stand in the presence of God. I am his messenger, and I have been sent to give you this good news. So here's your sign. You will be silent, and you will not be able to speak until what I have told you comes true. So the interview is over. The angel departs, and Zechariah comes out of the holy place. People are standing there going, what's been taken so They were looking at their sundials. They wondered what's been going on. And they conclude, he must have seen a vision. He can't speak. He must have seen a vision. Imagine Zechariah inside going, no, not a vision. I've seen an angel. And guess what? I'm going to have a son. Where are you going? So this incredible news that God was going to visit his people again after 400 years was going to have to wait another 10 months before the person to whom the message had been given could say a word. Silence was broken by silence. Some commentators take the description uh, that the angel, where he says, you will be silent, to mean that he also could not hear, so that he would be considered deaf and dumb. That would mean that he spent that entire time completely isolated, not hearing, not able to speak. They get that from verse 62 of chapter 1 where it says at the christening of John the Baptist where it says they kept making signs to him. If he was able to hear, they would have just said, so what do you want to call him? But they didn't do that. They had to make signs to him, whatever signs they used. So the action of the angel was to give, this, give to Zechariah the sign that he had asked for. He would not be able to speak because he didn't believe. He would not be able to hear because he didn't hear. And so the deaf, deafness and the dumbness was the sign. And so, when his time was up, he went home. Imagine that interaction. Hello, dear. How was your week in Jerusalem? What would he do? What would he say? He couldn't say he couldn't even hear her greeting. Now, I don't believe that this sign was a punishment. Most commentators that I read indicated that they felt that this punishment was just because the angel said, because you didn't listen or you didn't hear. 
and now you won't be able to speak. But just think about it. Every time in the next 10 months that he was tempted to, believe, to think that I'm not gonna have a baby, we're not gonna have a son, every time he was tempted to think that, the sign would remind him that he had seen an angel and the angel had said, you will have a son. So when he wanted to doubt, it would be wiped out by the deafness. Now Elizabeth does become pregnant. And her response to the pregnancy was to seclude herself for five months. The reason she says is this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon looked with favor upon me to take away, my, take away my disgrace from among men. But I think it would make sense that she didn't want to flaunt this pregnancy until she was certain that it would come to full term. She was elderly. Perhaps she had seen this in the past. And so she was careful, cautious. So what do we make of this remarkable end to the barrenness of Elizabeth and Zechariah? First, and I think the most obvious, is that what may be a long time to us is not a long time to God. 400 years with no prophet or word from God was clearly many generations of men, but only a short while with God. It was at least 30 years of marriage for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And certainly they prayed for what they felt like was forever but it was only a short while, and in the plan of God. Are you praying for something? Are you praying for something and it feels that God has not answered? Keep praying. Are you seeking a word from God for direction in your life or guidance in a problem? Keep praying, because God will answer in his timing. His timing may not match ours, but it is always perfect, and it always accomplishes his exact purpose. But how do we do this? Is it the little engine that could? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. No, it is by faith. Hebrews 11 is a, fa is a chapter known as the Hall of Faith, and it begins with a definition of what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then the author begins to recount the history of Israel and all the instances where faith played a part. And verse 11 is of particular note to us because it says, by faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Have you ever read Genesis 12 through 20? Have you ever seen how many crazy ways these people tried to solve the problem themselves? It didn't feel like faith when I was reading it. She struggled mightily. I don't know that I would consider that demonstrating faith, and yet God answered her prayers. 
and she is described as a faithful woman. You see, I think that's because God allows us to grow in our faith. And growing in your faith means falling down, falling short, not always being what you want to be because we are human. And God knows this, and he brings into our lives those things that help us to grow. A few years ago, I came down with shingles. But you don't want to come down with shingles, okay? Because it's awful. It's uncomfortable. Most times it's painful. It's hard to sleep. Hard to get comfortable. And I had no idea when it would get over. A number of you, in your desire to help me out, assured me that you were praying for me, that God was going to teach me things through it, and some of you even gave me stuff to put on myself, to put in myself, to put around myself. <laughs> I really appreciated that. And yet, while I was going through it, I didn't feel at all that this was how God was going to teach me anything. It was not fun. And yet, when I look back on that experience, I think I learned. I think I was comforted to know that people were praying for me. People were trying to help me, trying to lift me up, caring for me. And I think that's how it works. We grow as we walk with the Lord. His assurance is that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. He has shown through his death and resurrection the tender way that he tends his flock, encouraging us, strengthening us, even when it feels like nothing is happening. Another amazing thing that we learn from this passage is that Zechariah was told, your prayers have been heard. The angel does not say, your prayers have been recorded. Your prayers have been logged. Your prayers have been noted. He says, your prayers have been heard. That's exciting. We are known and loved and valued and heard by God. When we pray, he hears us. Scripture says that he knows every intimate detail of our lives and of our being. When we pray, there is a communion between us that is precious to God. And it is life-changing for us, even when it doesn't feel like it. And that's what's so important. It's not our feelings that matter. And yet our feelings affect us. You have all had that experience of praying when it was the last thing you wanted to do. You have all had the experience of praying when it feels like you are talking to the ceiling. But don't let your feelings stop you from praying because your heavenly Father hears you. When I was a kid, I, I, I would go up to my grandmother's house. She lived in a place called Karlstad, Minnesota. Does anybody here know where Karlstad, Minnesota is? Oh, good. 
<laughs> way up in the north, way in the west. Uh, and in my grandma's house, she had a plaque on the wall. And I remember it because we would run around the house because there wasn't anything to do in the wintertime. We'd go up there in Christmas, right? There was nothing to do but run in the house because it's 20 below outside. But I remember in her room, on the wall, there was a plaque. And that plaque said, very simply, He careth for you. <laughs> now, as a seven, eight-year-old kid, I remember reading that and going, Who's careth? It wasn't until later that I began to understand, okay, that's the King James Old English version of he cares for you. Okay, he, he careth for you. But you know what? My grandmother believed it. And what's more, she lived it. And I saw it. And it changed me as a kid. God hears us when we pray. Take that as an encouragement. And finally... A slight warning. Somehow through his long service in the temple, Zacharias seems to have become a little numb to it. Perhaps he had been so long in the details of sacrifice and service that he had begun to forget the God to whom these sacrifices were given. It happens, and it can happen slowly and incrementally over time. And we need others with whom we serve to help us check the influence of that in our lives. Because I want you to understand, it's a dangerous thing to come to church. You cannot come into the presence of God and be unchanged. Either you will hear what is said and it will begin to permeate your life and you will be changed. You will love more, you will give more, you will serve more. You will become more and more involved in the life of the church and its people because the word of God is changing you. Or, you will hear what is said and it will not touch you. You'll become adept at church language and you'll become a Christian chameleon. When at church, you'll fit in like a glove when in the world, you'll fit in there too. Nothing that's said here will ever really touch you or change you. And in fact, you might become spiritually dead. The other alternative is that you will hear what is said and utterly reject it. Instead of getting what I call the infection, you get an inoculation that guarantees that you will never be touched by what God has to say again. Years from now, someone will say, hey, didn't you go to church? And you'll say, yeah, I used to, but that place, full of hypocrites. It is a dangerous thing to come into the presence of God because you will be changed. It is happening even now. I pray that God, when he touches our hearts, will so touch us that we learn to love and serve and that our hearts warm to him and we learn to love him more. 
Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus that scripture declares is the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your nature. And you have declared that in these last days we are to look to him and learn of him. May this be our desire and our purpose when we gather together. Thank you also for the example of Zechariah and Elizabeth your faithful servants whose prayer you answered in such a wonderful way. And I pray that we would regularly, daily, and constantly call on your name in prayer and lay out our needs and our concerns before you, for you hear us. I also pray that you would cover each person here today with your love, with your grace that all of us would receive what we need for life, that you would fulfill our every physical and spiritual need, that you would give us the grace to serve you and to love you with our whole heart in joy and in peace. And finally, I thank you that one day, one great day, you will be among us. It will be declared the tabernacle of God is among men and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and thus we will be with you forever. Come, Lord Jesus. This we pray in your name. Amen.